Good morning, everybody. My name is Scott McKee. I am the pastor who does not run marathons. Uh, someone had to stay back home this morning, and, and I volunteered. Uh, it seemed like, uh, seemed like the least I could do. Uh, it was literally the least I could, I could do. Uh, I want to say a special welcome to those of you who join us from the Farmington Hills campus this morning. Uh, so grateful for the technology that allows our campuses to be linked together for the teaching time. Uh, I want to say hello also to those of you worshiping from home or from uh, places near or far. Glad you're here today. We're going to gather again this afternoon at 4 o'clock p.m. Uh, for a service of prayer and wholeness. Uh, this is for sick people, for grieving people, for Lions fans, for, for, for anybody, uh, anybody experiencing pain and loss. Uh, really, we are getting together this afternoon, uh, and we are going to pray for healings of all kinds. And so here at the Northville campus, please come on back, Farmington Hills, here to the Northville campus, 4 o'clock, to pray or be prayed for. Uh, maybe the healing you seek is a physical healing uh, sickness or disease or a surgery. Uh, maybe it's emotional. Maybe it's relational. Maybe the healing you seek is a healing for your marriage. Uh, maybe the healing is financial. Uh, we're going to gather again here in the sanctuary and we're going to sing some songs and we're going to hear some scriptures read, uh, but mostly we're going to pray and there'll be an opportunity for you to be prayed for individually by the elders of our church. I cannot guarantee that all the prayers offered tonight will be answered in the way that you request, but I can guarantee that we will fervently seek God together. So this morning, I want to talk a little bit about healing and prayer and use this conversation to back into our text of the day as we continue working our way through the New Testament book of Acts. I believe in miraculous healings. I have seen it, experienced it, witnessed it. I believe God heals people today, but I'm also more than a tad suspicious of some of the things that I see on television or some of the stories I hear. I've always thought I'm an odd bundle of faith and skepticism. I'm a person of deep faith, really I am. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I believe in things that cannot be seen. At the same time, I'm a natural skeptic. And I've often thought it was odd that these two characteristics would go in one person like me. But I've since learned that this is not rare at all. And many of you share these characteristics with me. I agree with Tony Campolo, who said that he is especially suspicious of faith healers who are bald. Because if I had that power, I would fix that uh, right away. Uh, now, that's not the way that healing works. But I do think we have a lot to learn from brothers and sisters in Christ who are from traditions that are more attuned to the power of the Holy Spirit and to miraculous healings. Uh, in many churches, you get the idea that God used to be active long ago. It's a history lesson. And sometimes you get the idea that God will be active someday in the future, eschatology, end times. But what people really want to know is that God is active and involved right now in our lives. And we could learn a lot from traditions who are growing all over the world who offer that to people of the world uh, today. Uh, so let's go over some questions about prayer and healing this morning before we get to the sermon of the day. First question often asked, why don't all prayers for healings get answered? And I think of this in a couple, at least a couple categories. The first category is uh, when God did not give you what you asked for, God gave you something better than you asked for. And today we're going to look at a story of a guy in Acts chapter 3 who asked for money, 
but instead he got healed. He did not get what he asked for, and he's glad about that. He got something better. And if you live long enough, you accumulate more examples of this kind of thing in your own life. I know a lot of people who who prayed that God would allow them to marry a very specific person, maybe somebody they were dating at the time, and in hindsight, they look back and say, thank you, God, for not granting that request, uh, because the life I have now is so much better than what I could have envisioned for myself way back then. God does not give us what we ask for. God gives us what we need. A good parent doesn't grant every request of their child. But there's a larger category that's simply unknown. I do not know why some people are born into poverty and some people are born into affluence. I don't know why sickness falls on some and not others. I don't know why healing seems to come only to some. Mother Teresa was one time asked, um, how do you explain these things, Mother Teresa, that, that uh, sometimes people who love God and pray to God uh, don't get healed, and people who don't seem to deserve the healings, they, they do get healed. And, you know, Mother Teresa, small of frame, big in spirit, uh, her answer was, when I get to heaven, he's got some explaining to do. <laughs> and I think that could be why Mother Teresa lived so long, um, that, <laughs> that God was like, I don't want to deal with that today. Um, I don't know why some people get healed and some people don't. I don't know why some people experience one tragedy after another. Um, But I do know that God cares. And I know that God invites us to present our requests and our needs and even our wants to him. And I do know that the church is to be an instrument of God's healing in this world. That we are to have a ministry of healing and hope to those who are hurting. Another question Should I pray for healing or for God's will to be done? I've seen great people pray in two different directions. There are those who pray bold prayers of healing. God cast the cancer out of this person. God heal this person. Another group says, I don't feel comfortable telling God what to do. I don't want to boss God around, and I just pray generally, God, your will be done. Whatever your will is for this person, uh, healing or not, your will be done. Do you pray bold prayers of healing, or do you pray generally God's will to be done? What do you do? I'll tell you what I'm doing these days. I am praying bold prayers of healing with the understanding uh, underneath it all that God's will would be done. God, of course we want your will to be done. That goes without saying here. Or if you, if you want to say it, go ahead and say it. God, we want your will to be done. But I'm going on record today because you've asked me to present my request that I'm praying for full bodily healing, the removal of all disease. I'm praying more boldly these days. And part of that is because I think in the last few years, I've spent time uh, with this church in Africa and India and uh, in places where you seem to see the power of God more acutely. Last time I was in India, we visited a village, and our host was taking us around, and people from the village started to come out of their homes and come toward us. And our host, a woman social worker, uh, said, well, the people are coming out to be healed because they heard there's a pastor in the village today. And I said, oh, there's a pastor in the village today? And she said, you. And I was like, oh, did you you tell them it was a Presbyterian pastor in the village? Because we're not especially uh, good at this kind of thing. And the first woman had a break in her arm, and through the translator, I was told that she wants her broken bones to be mended by the Holy Spirit. And so I did what any Presbyterian pastor would do. I said, we need to get you to a doctor 
Um, and a lot of our work there does involve medical clinics. We bring doctors and nurses to India and to Africa. Um, but I also believe in miracle of healing. So I prayed, God, would you mend these bones by the power of the resurrected Savior? God, would you give sight to this blind person? Uh, God, would you, I'm praying like a Pentecostal when I'm in India. And I've seen some things take root, and I've seen other things not take root. But I want to encourage you to pray bold prayers of healing with the understanding that the healing is up to a God we cannot fully understand. Another question we get, should I address my prayers, generally when I pray to God, to Jesus, or to the Holy Spirit? I get this question a lot. Now, how do we pray to our triune God? And the most common example in scriptures is that we pray to God the Father in the name of Jesus the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. The most repeated example, we pray to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are exceptions to that. When Stephen is praying right before he dies a martyr's death, he prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And the book of Revelation, we see the prayer, come Lord Jesus. So I think it's fair game to direct your prayer to any member of the Trinity because every member of the Trinity is fully God. And some of the great hymns of the church are Trinitarian. Verse 1 is uh, speaking directly to God the Father, and verse 2 speaks directly to God the Son, Jesus, and verse 3 speaks directly to the Holy Spirit. So whatever you're comfortable, if it helps you pray, you can pray to any member of the Spirit, but most commonly, you want to pray to God uh, the Father. Another question, what if, I, uh, what if I pray and nothing happens? Never assume that nothing happened. You do not know what happens beneath the surface. You cannot know this side of eternity, the, uh, the full effect of your prayers. An Oregon pastor had a, had a woman pray, uh, come to him after the service one Sunday, and she said, three weeks ago, you prayed for healing for my husband who had cancer, and yesterday he died. And the pastor said, oh, I'm so sorry. And she said, don't be. Before you prayed for my husband, my husband was a very angry man. He was 58 years old. And after you prayed, a peace came over him. And the last three weeks have been wonderful. And then she said this line, he wasn't cured, but he was healed. Cures are temporary. Cures don't last. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and you know what eventually happened to Lazarus? He died. What did he get out of it? A few more years of taxes. Uh, they, they had to call the insurance guy to make sure it covered a double death. Uh, that was temporary. Jesus feeds 5,000 people on a hillside, and their hunger is gone. You know what happened to those 5,000 people later? They got hungry. Uh, cures are temporary. None of the miracles of Jesus, except for his own resurrection, lasted. Uh, cures are, 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 are for time, but the healing of a heart and soul under the power of the Holy Spirit, that's not for time, that's for eternity. Sometimes we will pray and witness miraculous healings of the body. Sometimes we will pray and see miraculous healings of the heart and soul, and sometimes we get to see both. So let's get to our scripture reading of the day and our sermon of the day. We're working our way through the New Testament book of Acts, chapter by chapter, and today we come to chapter 3. So as is our custom, I want to ask you to stand to your feet if you're able for the scripture reading in Farmington Hills as well, please. If you would please stand to your feet as we give our attention to the reading of God's word to us 
from the book of Acts, chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Listen. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you. Peter and John go to the temple to pray. And there's a man sitting outside the gates who cannot walk. He had to be carried uh, there to his position. He's been unable to walk since the day he was born. He's sitting at, we're told, the gate called Beautiful. Scholars aren't sure exactly which gate this is, but it is most likely the gate that's closest to the court of the Gentiles. A lot of you know that the temple in Jesus' day was divided into courts with barriers and half walls, and uh, there was a court of the Gentiles. A Gentile basically means non-Jewish person. So non-Jewish people were allowed to go into the Jewish temple. They could go into the court of Gentiles, uh, but then there was a little barrier and they could go no farther. And then there was a court of women, and women were allowed to go into that courtyard, but they go no farther. And then you could go on and on into the center of the uh, temple where there was the Holy of Holies, into which only the high priest could go, and even then only once a year. So the man is sitting outside the temple because he cannot walk. He has to be carried there every day. But he's also sitting outside the temple because he's not allowed to go in. According to the ceremonial laws of the day, he is considered spiritually unclean. To lie on a mat as he did every day, uh, according to the law of the day, meant someone was spiritually unclean. So every day he sits there and watches people go into the temple to praise God and to worship, but he can't. He's not allowed to go in, and he sits there and watches others from the temple gate. Now, it's not a bad place for beggars to sit. The giving of alms, giving to the poor was an act of merit in Judaism, still is. And so to position yourself outside of a religious place of worship could be strategic positioning. Uh, people are already kind of thinking that way as they go to church, as they go to temple, and you can raise the possibility of getting a donation yourself with strategic placement. We read later in the chapter that he was 40 years old and had been doing this for years. He sees people go back and forth into the temple every day. Sometimes they look at him and sometimes they don't. Now, when you're talking with somebody, uh, do you look them in the eyes? Of course you do. We were told by our moms and dads that was the polite thing to do, to make eye contact when you're talking to people. What about if you see a salesperson? 
Like you're at Costco, uh, and there's the extra salespeople on the side. They do this in Home Depot as well, and they do it in the shopping mall. I don't think they're really a Costco employee. They're somebody else, but they're on the side with their booth, and they're selling uh, air freshener systems, or they're selling gutters for your house, or they're selling a new cell phone plan. And you see them. You're pushing your cart in Costco, and you see them kind of scanning the store, looking for prospects, and you see them, and you're pushing your cart. Do you, A... Look in their eyes and smile at them? Or do you keep your eyes straight ahead and push as if you had not seen them at all? <laughs> what do you do? Uh, I had, for the most part, always looked at them and said hello, thinking that was the polite thing to do. But my wife explained to me that actually, if you have no intention of buying whatsoever, it's actually impolite. Because when you look in their eyes, uh, you raise their hope. You give them false expectation. When you chat with them, you're actually wasting their time. She said it's more polite actually to push uh, straight through. And I was thinking about that. And I asked her, you know, well, what, can I look in the eyes of the people giving out the free uh, food samples at, at, at Costco? She said, no, that's okay, because you're going to take the free food samples, but you're not going to buy anything extra. And so I've been thinking about this. What's more proper and polite? I think young women have always had this issue when, when a young woman walks by a young man and, and smiles or looks him in the eye. She wants to make sure she's not communicating more than she intends or less than she intends. And so women have really worked to master nonverbal communication, uh, which makes absolutely zero difference because no man can ever pick up nonverbal communication. They have no clue uh, whatsoever. Uh, what about when you pass a beggar? You're on the street in the city, or maybe you're exiting I-275 and there's somebody there with a cardboard sign and it says, out of work, veteran. What do you do? Now, I'm not talking about whether you give or not. That's a whole other conversation. Like me, you wonder, is it helpful to give or harmful to give? Those are really good questions. But do you look at the person standing on the side of the highway or do you keep your eyes straight ahead and pretend not to see them? There have been studies on this. We know what most Americans do in that situation. You want to guess what most Americans do? Straight ahead. There's a lot of psychology around this. It involves shame and embarrassment. There are a lot of reasons for this. But most of us look straight ahead, uh, and pretending not to see and, and praying for the light to turn green, to resolve the heat of the moment. Peter and John are walking to the temple. There's a beggar on the side of the road. Nobody's looking at him. They're keeping their eyes straight ahead. What did Peter and John uh, do? Let's look back at that text from Acts chapter 3. When the beggar saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked them for money. Peter did what? Look straight at them. Oh, no, Peter, never do that. Never look, don't look in their eyes. Right? As did John. John also looks in his eyes. They both look right at the guy. And then Peter said to the guy, look at us. Not only are they looking at him, we're looking at you now, you look, you look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Of course he did. His expectation is through the roof. Nobody's even looking at him. These guys look at him and demand that he looks at them. And Peter is the next one to speak. And Peter says, silver and gold I do not have. And the guy must have been thinking, silver and gold is kind of what this whole thing's about. Silver and gold is what I need to live. What are you going to give me? Advice, a gospel track, 
Peter says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. And Luke tells us that Peter takes the man by his hand and the man stands to his feet. There comes this moment that got delayed in his life for 40 years, this moment that his own parents never got to see as strength and energy surges into his legs and for the first time in his 40-year life, he stands unsupported. And he takes his first step at 40 years old and then a second and then a third and then he starts jumping around. He's got 40 years of movement kept up in his body and he begins just kind of dancing around, around the temple. His joy is expressed in his body and the people watch him. Right? Peter is consumed by this burning conviction that the main thing he has to give another human being is not silver and gold. The main thing he has to offer another human being is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. There's a very ancient story, hundreds of years old. I'm not sure if it's true or not, but the story is that Thomas Aquinas uh, visits the Pope at the Vatican. At the Pope at that time would have been Pope Innocent II, and the Pope is giving Thomas Aquinas a tour of the Vatican and showing all the wealth of the treasuries of the church. And the Pope says to Thomas, see Thomas, the church no longer has to say, silver and gold have I none. And Thomas says, yes, and now the church can no longer say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. What the church really has to offer people, what this church has to offer people is, is Jesus. It's not our buildings or our programs or technology. It's not musical concerts or support groups or even our grocery distribution program. The, the, what we really have to offer people, the, the only unique thing we really have to offer people is Jesus himself. I believe we ought to feed people. I believe we ought to care for hurting people. I believe we ought to pray that people will receive healing and wholeness and employment and blessing. But mostly, I think we ought to pray that people would receive Jesus himself. Peter sees somebody that other people are looking right past. Peter is developing a heart of compassion like Jesus. And maybe Peter is thinking about a conversation he and Jesus had when Peter was at a particularly low point and Jesus said to him, Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, Peter, love my children. And Peter starts to love the way that Jesus loved. Peter starts to live and love like Jesus. If you and I are going to share the gospel, we must share God's heart for people. We need to see people as Jesus saw them. We need to be utterly convinced, as Peter was utterly convinced, that people are better with God than without God. Do you believe that? Peter had come to believe that there isn't a person on planet Earth who's not better off connected to God then disconnected from God. Do you believe what Peter and the apostles believed or have you come to doubt that? Has that passion waned in you? This passion drives the entire book of Acts. It must drive every church. So back to the story. The, 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 the crowd gathers around this man who's jumping around celebrating his joy. They know it's the same guy and a crowd gathers. Peter has this opportunity now to speak to this. What's he going to say? Will he shrink back? 
And this is what Peter says in verse 19. He tells the gathered crowd, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. And it says what happened at this point, the church now grew to 5,000 people. We saw last week the church grew to 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost. Now they grow to 5,000 people. Peter Drucker, the, the management guru, was famous for saying that every organization, a church, a business, a nonprofit, every organization has to ask itself two primary questions. Question number one, what business are we in? And question number two, how's business? And let's be clear, the business of the church of Jesus Christ is to introduce people to Jesus, to give people Jesus, to help people be transformed by Jesus. That is our business, and it's always, always has been. The closest thing we have to a personal mission statement of Jesus is this, uh, this line from Luke's gospel. Jesus says, the Son of Man, that was his favorite way of referring to himself. Jesus said, the Son of Man came to what? Seek and to save what was lost. To seek and to save what was lost. And now we get to join Jesus in this mission to seek and save that which was lost, to have his heart for his people, to live and love as Jesus did. Now, next week, we're going to see how the followers of Jesus remained uh, commit, <coughs> excuse me, committed to their mission, committed to their mission even in spite of opposition. And <coughs> we're going to see that next week. And we're going to see how this fearful group becomes, in fact, a very courageous group. Uh, so that's the end of the sermon today. We'll pick up next week. In closing, I want to offer a pastoral word and an invitation. A pastoral word and an invitation. We're in a section of the book of Acts that talks a lot about how the new community centered in Jesus uh, enjoyed the favor of all the people. This means they enjoyed goodwill not only of the insiders, but of the outsiders as well. And last week we saw that for a lot of uh, that back at then and now, people look and say, I'm not sure I believe everything they believe, but wow, are those good people. That's goodwill. Now, the goodwill that we have as Christians over the last 10 years or so has been especially threatened during election seasons. We have not always been at our best. And we are coming up again on a November election cycle. Politics are emotional. Politics are designed to make you angry. Politics are designed to divide people and to get you to view people of an opposing opinion as your enemy. This is all by design to move you to action. And I want to urge you to manage the emotions of this season well. Politics can be a distraction or even a barrier uh, to our main mission of introducing people to Jesus. Now, I'm not saying don't get involved in politics. In fact, I think you should. Uh, study the candidates, study the issues, and cast an informed vote based on your Christian conviction. But do not let your con Christian conviction uh, force you to violate the commands of Christ, to love your neighbor, to love your enemy, to be a peacemaker, to humble yourself. Now, this particular election season is going to be especially emotional because abortion is on the ballot. In addition to candidates and other proposals, 
there is a proposal, Proposal 3, is a proposed amendment to the Michigan Constitution to make abortion legal and accessible to all ages in all circumstances. And as you know, any conversation about abortion is highly charged, highly emotional. There are people like me who see it as a matter of justice for the child. If biblical justice means being a voice for the voiceless and a defender of the defenseless, who could be more voiceless and defenseless than an unborn child? We need to defend those who have no means to defend themselves. Others see abortion as an issue of justice for women, especially women who may be victims or women who uh, have limited access to medical care or women who feel they don't have the means to raise a child on their own. These are justice issues, highly emotional. And the conversation about abortion raises all kinds of emotions, of course, for women who've had an abortion or men who have participated in an abortion. And that includes many people here today. There might be some guilt or shame or doubt. And may I remind you that God's grace covers all things. God's grace covers everything. Somehow we need to reject the false dichotomy that we can either support women only or children only. The gospel compels us to love both women and children. We believe all people are made in the image of God regardless of a person's age, gender, ethnicity, economic status, or any other variable. So we want to be advocates for life of all stages, and that unequivocally includes being an advocate for the unborn. But we must advocate for life at every stage. That's why our church partners with crisis pregnancy centers, uh, why we are active in anti-sex trafficking efforts, why we have special needs ministry, why we encourage foster care and adoption, why we support education and health care in the poorest parts of our city. Being an advocate for life at every stage will sometimes involve politics, like it will this November. But as people of faith, we must never assume that this is solely a legal or legislative issue. It is much broader. Much more could be said. I know I've said less than some of you would like and more than some of you would like already. So let me invite you to a one-hour lunchtime Zoom webinar a week from Tuesday. We're calling the webinar Living and Loving Like Jesus in the Age of Abortion. And it's next Tuesday, not this Tuesday, but the following Tuesday, October 25, 12 noon via Zoom. Please register, even if you uh, can't make that time, but would like to view the recording later, you still must register. Register whether you can come in person or want to view later, you have to register. And here's the syllabus of what we're going to talk about on that day. And the panel will be uh, myself, Terrence Gray, and Pam Dodge. And we're going to look at what pro-choice and pro-life both get wrong. I want to speak to this deep division and hatred and maybe misunderstanding at some points. And those of us that are pro-life, we want to even hear some of the, uh, some of the fair critiques being offered to us from a pro-choice perspective. And then we're going to look at what's at stake this November in Michigan. We will speak directly to uh, Proposal 3 and what it means and what it doesn't. And just to lay all my cards on the table, uh, we're going to explain why we think this proposal goes too far, uh, not just for pro-life people, but even some pro-choice people. It opens up the possibility 
possibility of late-term abortion, possibility of teenage um, abortions without parental knowledge. We'll dig into the details of that. And then uh, number three, we'll talk about this. How to survive this heated season without alienating your neighbors and dividing your family. Let's not destroy the witness of Jesus in a highly emotional season. And then number four, we'll look at some biblical principles to guide Christian people. Um, not just your classic uh, verses you're thinking of, but a broader sense. And then we're going to pray together. And we're going to do all of this in 60 minutes because I believe in miracles. Uh, so would you pray with me right now? Well, God of grace, we, uh, we thank you for the example we have in scriptures. We thank you uh, for the book of Acts and for the faith that is now, um, for, the, for the faith that, uh, that they demonstrated. We pray especially for those who are hurting, for those who are distant, for those who are feeling alienated. Um, we pray for this world that means so much to you. Um, we pray for healing to take place in our church and in our community. Uh, we pray that you would be God over all of this. Uh, and then, God, we, 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 uh, we pray for those who are lost and that you would renew our efforts to join Jesus in his mission for this world. Give us a way that we can proclaim the good news from the mountaintops in ways that our world will understand and embrace. We pray for the poor and the powerless on this day. This we pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And everybody said, will you stand as we sing this final song?